Hi everyone, my name is Mike Cook. I'm a research fellow at Queen Mary University of London and in this talk I'm going to be giving you an overview of my vision paper at COG 2021, The Social Responsibility of Game AI. So rather than giving you overviews and doing loads of different introductions, we're just going to dive right in with the first section. So are we responsible? What does responsibility mean? Why have I written this paper? So there's two parts to this title, games and AI, and both of these areas have experienced a huge growth and are now some of the most important things in the lives of every human being on this planet. In terms of play, play has always been a fundamental thing that humans did. It's always been very important to human culture, but increasingly we find video games in particular are a massive thing that people do with their lives. Almost three billion people play and spend money on games regularly, video games that is, and many, many more besides will be accessing games in ways that we can't track with statistics like this. On the other side, we have artificial intelligence. So 10 years ago, when I started as a PhD researcher, AI was only a small part of the world's uh, scientific research. But today, 4% of all peer-reviewed research publications are about AI. AI is now a huge part not only of the research world, but also of government policy and private investment. Private investment has soared in AI over the last decade. So AI is important and it's growing in importance. It's affecting all of our lives. It's these AI companies and AI researchers are having access to governmental systems, departments like health and police. They're affecting the way that we're employed and whether we can become employed. So artificial intelligence is more important than ever and it's not showing any signs of slowing down. So game AI researchers have a unique position here. They're experts in these two very important areas. And as a result, they've seen huge increases in research funding available, jobs available, salaries, um, expansions of things like university departments. In the UK, where I live, uh, many universities are finding departments being shut down in subjects like uh, humanity subjects, art subjects, even some of the, the lesser known sciences. But computer science and AI in particular is experiencing a growth unlike any other. So for us, it's now easier to get promotions, it's easier to get press coverage, it's easier to get research funding. That doesn't mean that it's easy. Many of game area researchers watching this talk will certainly be sighing or rolling their eyes at this point because there's still a lot of problems, there's lots of discrimination and luck and prestige problems, but compared to some other fields, we have it much easier. And what this means is that we have a platform, we have a lot of power, we have a lot of opportunities to do something. The question is, what are we doing with that? So to whom are we responsible? Who, who are we affecting by the work that we do? Well, in the paper, I identify four groups that I think are worth mentioning. The first is game developers themselves. Now, we obviously already think of ourselves as affecting the lives of game developers, but we often don't talk about what that actually means. The games industry employs so many people around the world. In the US alone, over 220,000 jobs are dependent on the games industry. So there are huge, huge numbers of people all around the world who are affected by what happens to games and how they're made and how they're bought and how they're played. Despite that, when we think about our interactions with the games industry, the people you see speaking at things like GDC, the people whose work you see covered in the games press, well, that's a much shorter list of people. That's not hundreds of thousands or millions of different people. Um, that's usually the same hundred or so famous names, often white men, uh, who are telling us the same stories over and over again. So our research is impacting all of these people who we don't hear from. We've never met, we don't speak to very often. 
And this is something that we should be reflecting when we're potentially inventing technology that affects people's livelihoods, people's jobs. The second group of people that we affect are artists, hobbyists, and others who are excluded. We've talked about game developers. By that I mean people who are in salaried positions, who full-time job is making games in some way. But there are a lot of people who make games for other reasons. So in February of this year, Steam uh, announced that they had added their 50,000th game to their game library. And over the last decade, we've seen a lot of games added to Steam and a lot of complaints about how hard it is to make a living selling games commercially. But Steam's library pales into comparison to the huge, vast quantity of video games that are out there in the world. Itch.io, which is an independent store with no listing fee and a lot easier to access, has over 370,000 games on there. And Roblox, a phenomenon that's a major part of the lives of many young people all around the world, has over 20 million games, or they call them experiences currently, in their game store. Now most of these experiences, most of the games on itch.io are completely free, and many of the ones that are commercially sold will not make anywhere near enough money to sustain their creators. So we're responsible to all of these people, these people who are making games for the love of it, these people who are making games and who are unable to, to achieve commercial success, not through any fault of their own, but through restrictions like access to technology, access to education, access to press and opportunities, access to visas. So we're responsible to all of these people as well, because games, it, games are not just an industry, they're an art form, they're creative, they're play, they're something which humans do, it's a way that humans express themselves. And we need to make sure that we talk to and think about these people in our work as well. The third group that we're responsible to, of course, is the general public. The general public are about to have really their whole world changed by artificial intelligence over the coming decades. And yet, a huge number of people are really not sure whether they want this to happen. I have read several surveys in writing this paper. In one of them, for example, 70% of Americans expressed some fear about AI and the impact of automation on their jobs. In a survey of global attitudes to AI, 30% of people said that they felt AI would be mostly harmful to the world. And in some regions like Latin America and North America, that was almost 50%. And yet, despite all of this impact that we're worried about it having on our lives, very few of us feel that we actually understand it. Less than half of people surveyed in the UK said that they felt they understood the impact AI would have on their lives, and only 10% said that they felt very confident that they knew a lot about AI. Games are really one of the few opportunities people have to learn about AI in a safe, playful and low-stakes manner. And that makes the work that we do especially important because we have an opportunity to educate and empower the general public and allow them to act with confidence when they interact with artificial intelligence and maybe not be as afraid about the future or if their fears turn out to be justified, which they may well be, um, then we can hopefully give them more understanding and the tools that they need to act on that. And finally, we are responsible to each other. This community of games researchers, including gaming AI researchers but not exclusively limited to it, is hundreds or maybe even thousands strong, depending on how you define it. And if we can't be responsible to one another in terms of making our community a better place, then we don't really have any hope of doing any of these other things that I've already listed. Our field, like most academic fields, is plagued with issues relating to sexism, racism, other kinds of bigotry. We are at the mercy of unfair systems like tenure, peer review, paid-for publications, and more. And at the same time, we're also interacting with uh, an industry like games, an art form like games, I should say, um, which has a lot of other problems very similar to us in terms of racism and sexism, transphobia, and all kinds of other issues. 
And so it's sort of a double whammy for us in terms of exposing vulnerable members of our community. And we've lost many great people or hurt them through our inaction and our inability to deal with some of these problems which could have been resolved sooner. Ten years ago, I was a fresh-faced PhD student at CIG, the precursor to this conference in South Korea. And this year, I'm coming with two of my own PhD students to attend this conference for the first time. And I want to make sure that the community we're leaving behind for the next generation of researchers is better than the one that I've witnessed over the last decade. So above all else, we have to look after ourselves. So we've identified some groups to whom we're responsible, but what responsibilities do we actually have? Well, there are so many possible responsibilities that we could list, but there were three topics in particular that I wanted to address in the paper, and I'm going to give them a very, very quick overview right now. So the first is resisting imperialism and war. The connection between video games and the military is well known and long established, uh, so I don't need to go into it too much here. But what's a little bit different is that in recent years we've seen an increasing number of links between AI research and the military. And in many ways they have some parallels. So games are often used by the military as a PR tool, they're used for recruitment, um, and of course they're used to sort of raise the profile of the military as something which is more normalized in our lives. And we see a similar thing in AI research. Military institutions often don't need to publish at our venues, but they do so because it raises their profile, it helps them recruit young researchers to contribute to their future projects, and of course it normalizes the presence of the military in these environments generally. There's been a lot of disturbing developments recently in the relationship between the military and AI research. Things like describing the development of autonomous military drones as a moral imperative, or DARPA's very recent Game Breaker program, which is employing a lot of gaming AI researchers and defense contractors across the US to develop new techniques for the US military. Now we can argue that the military is always going to want to invest in this kind of research, but the question is whether we should allow it in our spaces and at our conferences. Should we have papers which are co-authored by representatives of state militaries which have caused atrocities in the countries that some of our other research members are from. Our community contains many refugees or descendants of refugees who have had to flee the actions of countries who are also publishing military research at our conferences and to me this just seems like something which shouldn't be allowed to go on. Now obviously this is a delicate topic. A lot of us are funded by military research and that is not always explicit in nature. Some of us take military funding for all kinds of reasons, sometimes because it seems to have genuinely good applications, sometimes because we need to employ people, we need to keep roofs over people's heads, we need to keep people's work visas intact. There are so many good reasons to take money from bad people. But I do think at some point we need to rethink our relationship with these organizations and I think that time is fast approaching. And in particular, because of games' importance in the public sphere and their relationship uh, with everyday life, we should be very careful in allowing our platform to be used by groups like military organizations to promote themselves, to normalize themselves, and to kind of hide or launder their reputations behind something fun and playful. The second responsibility in the paper is resisting capitalism. Now, I understand that capitalism for a lot of people has a lot of strong connotations as a word, and a lot of people see it as something scary or or leading to terrifying political arguments. But that's not what I'm trying to do here. Capitalism is a concept, it's a feature of our world that we live in. There are people who are very proud to call themselves capitalists. And we have to ask ourselves, given that everything we do is in some way affected or influenced by capitalism, how much do we want to lean into that factor? 
Now in the paper I identify two ways in which I think our work is influenced by capitalism in particular, one of which is what I call the tyranny of scale. This is our tendency to move towards bigger, more expensive and more complex solutions and technology. Now it's always good to try and push our results as far as possible and see what we can squeeze out of the latest and greatest technology. But private investment in AI research in particular has led us down a more dangerous road where money is directly related to new research results. Simply buying more things allows us to do better research at scale with certain techniques. And we need to be careful about this because at some point we're producing technology which can really only benefit very few people who can afford to leverage it themselves. It doesn't matter how reusable or how much Microsoft wants to talk about cloud computing, for example. Ultimately, it's not good to centralize power in a few corporations, and it's not good to develop technology that can only be used if you have access to 100 NVIDIA GPUs. So in the paper I talk about things like encouraging us to be honest about the resources required to run the research when we publish it, um, and also to encourage maybe tracks that have hardware limitations, like a track of research only focused on Pico 8, uh, which is a sort of cut-down, limited resource uh, computing uh, game development platform. The second aspect to resisting capitalism that we've identified in the paper is being realistic about automation. So I work in a field uh, called computational creativity. That means I look at things like generative content uh, for games and also automated game design. And when we talk about automating things, we often talk about making people's lives easier. Lots of papers talk about this. We talk about speeding things up or lowering cost with the idea that this will somehow make people's lives better. But in the paper, I point out that there are major, major tools in the games industry, like SpeedTree, for example, that have made the generation of certain types of content very cheap and very easy. And yet the games industry is still plagued by abusive conditions, crunch, overwork, wage theft, and worse. So it's clear that automation is not going to make anyone's lives better. And the reason for that is that the way most of these companies are run, if we make it easier to produce a product, the product will expand or the pressure on the workforce will increase until they are at the same level of uh, stress and, and productivity, as it were, as before. So that doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't look into automated systems. I certainly don't want to do that. I'm having a lot of fun doing it. But we need to be seriously realistic about what the possible impact of our work is. And we need to contemplate whether we can do our research in a way that more strongly resists automation in some way that is perhaps anti-capitalist. Otherwise, we're going to find that our research soon enough is going to have a fairly toxic impact on the games industry potentially and hurt some of those people that we were talking about earlier on in this talk. The final responsibility identified in the paper is the responsibility of building a better academy. Now this is a difficult subject because I've had a lot of arguments and clashes with people in this community over the years trying to do things as minor as instituting a code of conduct at a conference or an event. But the fact is that we can't keep having these little disagreements and we need to start taking bigger strides in order to protect the people in our field. I've let down a lot of people in this community over time, a lot of people who are treasured friends, and it's not good enough that we keep making these small little changes, we keep making these token gestures that inch our field along at a glacial pace. We need to start doing more to improve our community. We need to find ways of improving our communities and leveraging the significant power and resources that we have so that we can create better communities in the future. And unfortunately, this is going to mean uncomfortable conversations. In the reviews for this paper, there were some uncomfortable one-way conversations, at the very least, being directed at me. But unfortunately, people are going to be made uncomfortable by this. We are going to end up risking things. You may have to have awkward conversations with people who you considered your friends. You may end up burning some bridges. 
but we can't keep on going on as we are. It's not tenable. I understand that some of you might be sitting there thinking, how we are is fine. I haven't had any problems. I haven't even heard of any problems. People like you are making a fuss about nothing and that's causing problems. But I can assure you, these problems are happening. I just want to end this talk by, by thanking you for, for watching through it. Um, I understand that some of these topics can be a little uncomfortable, I guess, to watch. Um, we don't like to have these conversations. One of the reviewers said that they don't come to conferences to be told what to think. But of course that's exactly why we come to conferences. We come to conferences to hear passionate arguments uh, in favor of a particular approach, whether that's an approach to pathfinding through a 3D environment or an approach to doing research in a world that is evil and selfish and greedy. And so today I haven't come to tell you how to think, but I've come to tell you how I think and to hope that as a community we can come together to find a better way of working than we do currently. I really do believe that we can do a lot of good in this world and I think we all just need to sort of band together a little bit and realize that we have that power. I really want to thank you again for taking the time to watch this um, and hopefully for having a look at the paper and thinking about your own views on the matter. It doesn't matter whether they, they perfectly line up with mine, they don't need to. Uh, if you do want to talk, hopefully politely to me, you can always tweet at me at MTRC on Twitter. No one's polite on Twitter anyway, actually. You can say whatever you want on there. And um, if you want to, you can also email me, mike at possibilityspace.org. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you've enjoyed this talk. I hope you enjoy the paper. And I hope you enjoy the rest of COG. See ya. Uh, okay, that's that's all I've got. Um, I don't know how we're doing for time, um, but uh, if there's no time for questions, obviously I'll be on the Discord anyway to, to chat about these kinds of things. And yeah, I just wanted to say there's a lot more uh, info in the paper as well, um, like a lot more. I, I couldn't really cover it properly in the talk, but hopefully that was an, enough of a taster. So thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Mike. And uh, actually, it's an opening thank you rather than the closing one because we have the time for questions. Uh, so if anyone wants to, like, uh, uh, please go ahead. We have a lot of clapping, so uh, that's a positive reinforcement for sure. But I'm sure that there is a lot of people which actually disagree or actually have like a comment or need a clarification. Yeah, so I just wanted to say that like there's I haven't met a single person who agrees with everything in this paper, so I'm not <laughs> expecting people like don't worry about it, you know, like. <laughs> It would be pretty weird, right? I yeah, mean, like, exactly. You have exactly the same spectrum <laughs> of like uh, values. But let, let's start with um, Adonis. I'll uh, voice uh, his question. I have no, I'm just reading it in real time. Uh, so, what can an individual uh, do to address any of these responsibilities? Brainstorm with us, okay. Uh, maybe we don't do brainstorm, but just go ahead and think like uh, of like a concrete actions you actually maybe have put in place yourself, or you think could be put in place. Uh, I don't know, maybe for the organization of the next COG. Well, um, well, okay, so that's an interesting question actually. So, okay, I'll answer this. There's two parts. So, the the easiest thing we could do is to actually start discussing these things. So, there's 54 people in the Zoom call right now, um, but in the paper, I point out that. By Mark Nelson's estimations, there are somewhere between like 500 and 2,000 people in this field. So what you could do is go home uh, and have exactly the conversation I've just had with your research group and see how people feel, see which, see which bits 
you know, people in your research communities agree with or would like to do more on? Because in some cases, it's just a, it's just a case that people just, you know, haven't thought about some of these issues before. Many of these issues we've talked about at length, and I actually wanted to say that here, like some of the things in this in this paper, we, we they stem from conversations with dozens of you over like I didn't invent any of these perspectives. Um, but uh, certainly for new students, for example, it's really good to like talk to them about these issues. And that's how you start to think about like things that can be done locally. Um, in terms of like concrete stuff uh, for COG next year, there's actually some some stuff in the paper which I discussed, um, which some people have said that they they thought were quite interesting. Um, so one was, for example, um, as a way to reach out to regions that maybe don't have as good access to our conferences, we could allow papers that have been published in a national conference uh, in a country that we don't have many good links to. We could allow like a, a, a best paper or a paper that's already been published there to be automatically included in the proceedings of COG next year, maybe in like a, a separate section um, in the same way that we had the TOG papers here. So TOG papers have already been published somewhere, but we gave them a 10 minute slot to present their work. So we could give this for, to someone from a, a region that we have no connections with um, or someone that wouldn't normally be able to afford to come or to maybe even write a paper in English because that can be very difficult. Um, or the option of, of having, um, and I actually found out from, from my wife that some conferences in her field do this, the, basically the ability to give additional grant money to a conference in order to explicitly support free tickets for students, free tickets for game developers who, who don't have a budget. So there's lots of things that we can do, I think, for conferences in small and big ways. But I think the top thing is just to sort of talk to more people and find out where they, where they feel, because the, the number one thing to do is to get more of these discussions out in the open and start to build communities of people who want to change like that's that's the big thing i know that some people need to be convinced or some people are just flat out against it but a lot of us need to realize you know how many of us would like to change some of these things and then we can sort of you know band together to to do it all right uh so i'll i have myself like a number of arguments and questions and like uh, and i think the the topic is very interesting but i'll just relay like i'll go with the uh, uh, Lucian uh, uh, question. So you mentioned the negative uh, opinions on AI in general population, but do you feel some of the concerns they have might be justified and which ones? How would you reassure them regarding those legitimate, legitimate concerns? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think many of their concerns are legitimate, to be honest. And um, so I think concerns about um, the loss of jobs, I think, are fair. Not because AI specifically is going to be responsible for it, but, you know, economies in the world are changing and AI is also becoming, we also have to understand that AI is becoming a more general concept than just the things that we research. AI is, is sort of the, the poster child for a lot of changes that are going to be happening technologically to our society. Um, so I think people are right to be afraid of uh, automation of some weapons, automation of uh, a lot of security systems and things like that, like locking down borders and, and having a lot more stringent checks on, uh, you know, I met someone who just moved to the UK the other day and they said they couldn't believe how many uh, surveillance cameras there are in the UK. And uh, there is, like the statistics are hideous on it. And once those systems become more and more intelligent, you know, there are things that, that you should be legitimately concerned about. And in terms of reassuring them, I, I don't know if I can really, like, honestly, it, it is up to people to sort of, I think the, the biggest reassuring point you can make is that um, in many cases, I think the biggest weapon that's being used against people is to try and convince them that they don't understand AI and that it's too complicated and that they can't have an opinion on it. 
And the biggest thing that you can do to reassure people is to sort of show them that this isn't the case, show them that AI can be understood uh, without four doctorates, um, and then to show them that they have they can have an opinion about it and that they, they can sort of say no, actually, like this isn't inevitable. Um, one of the comparisons uh, I don't think I made in the paper, but that I was reading about in some documents is that one of the views of, of technological advance is that it's kind of like the video game civilization. Like there's always a technology waiting to be researched and it has to be researched before you can progress. But the real world doesn't work like that. Like society can decide what technologies it wants and the ways in which it wants to experience them. And that used to be more common with AI, but nowadays I think people have sort of been trained to feel like they don't understand it and they can't have an opinion. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I mentioned education through games, because I think teaching people about AI is one of the most valuable things we can do. All right, so I'll, uh, I'll go with um, uh, another question from uh, Connor. Again, like uh, reading it in real time. So uh, pardon me, like uh, if it doesn't come out as uh, neat as it could. How do you ever reconcile the fact that you hear about terrible things and people in the world at large, uh, yet almost never actually encounter them in your scope of life? I guess that's connected to the idea of the fact that some of the implications of, uh, uh, or negative implications of like uh, uh, automation technologies. Part, yeah, I, I would like rather to use automation than AI because I think it's, a, it's not necessarily the same thing. Um, but like it, it does have some sort of implications, but they're generally far away. Although with surveillance in the UK, maybe not that far away. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's it's very tricky. I think. Um, I mean, it's it's a it's a really interesting question and a very a very big one. Um, and Connor's added related to AI or the industry people at AI. I think. Um, I think especially now, it's really difficult to seriously gauge the extent of the impact that AI is having on, on our lives, partly because the messaging about AI is very tightly controlled. So one of the statistics in the, um, in the paper is that there was a survey done of news articles about AI, and they found that um, if you look at like what news articles are about, the vast majority of news articles are about industry uh, applications of AI, not academics. And in fact, the, the proportion of articles that mentioned an academic was the same number as the proportion of articles that mentioned Elon Musk. So our entire field collectively has as much relevance to uh, journalism about AI as uh, like one dude that owns a car company. Um, so the, the reason why that's relevant is because it's sometimes difficult to tell what is really happening in the world just by you know browsing our Twitter feed or reading through Facebook. Um, and especially when we think about things like um, the impact on the legal system, like automation has been involved in, in policing and the legal system for, uh, sorry, I shouldn't say automation, but, but AI, like intelligent systems, have been involved in these systems for quite a long time, but we don't really hear about them. And you might be shocked to, to hear, for example, that, you know, going back even before the use of AI in these systems, um, many parole decisions about female convicts were being used based on data about male convicts. And like, classic mistakes that we would now recognize as, as mistakes in data science were being used before, you know, computers were even getting involved in these systems. And so I guess my point is that we, we have to be a little bit more aware. We have to take more of a, a, an investigative kind of researcher's perspective with these things. And although we're not always hearing about them, that's partly because this is, there's big money involved in this now. And 
a, a lot of messaging about these things is very carefully controlled. Governments are also a little bit cagey. They don't really know where this is going. Um, so I think it's about vigilance, about looking for, you know, looking beyond the headlines and um, also talking to people. I really recommend talking to people who are actually being affected by these things. Um, and uh, if you want a, a nice um, recommendation for where to start, maybe, is to look at uh, Jamie Woodcock's writing. Um, I acknowledge Jamie in the paper, actually, but Jamie's written about some really interesting ways that technology is transforming labor um, and the kind of people who are really affected by it. I don't know if that answered your question, Greg, uh, Connor. Sorry about that, <laughs> but we can talk more on the Discord. Um, all right, so uh, we, we can maybe switch to the uh, next speaker in, in just a minute. I have one question, which is, uh, how do you think, uh, you just mentioned the way that technology affects labor, uh, and you just mentioned before the fact that like uh, wrong, uh, the wrong usage of data has affected like, uh, let's say, uh, policing or like uh, uh, justice management for long before, like, well, long, long is probably not the right uh, adverb, but long before the, um, um, the advent of AI. So why is, uh, are, are we talking about a specific issue with game AI or are we talking about the fact that uh, as a field, we just are not facing what other fields like, uh, let's say, uh, biology is already facing? So I think um, in, in the paper, what I'd point out a couple of things. So first of all, is that there are things that are specific to us. So for instance, we, we affect the, the works and, and the work and jobs of people in the games industry. So our work affects their kind of labor and the way that their jobs are going to operate in the future. So there are specific things to us. That's, that's like half of it. And the other half of it, which maybe, you know, is, is more of a stretch for some people and not as much of a concern, but is if you wanted to sort of change people's opinions about AI and you're a security researcher, that's like, it's actually a lot harder to get people to listen to you than if you're a game AI researcher. If we wanna to talk to people about AI or, or, or encourage them to understand AI or welcome them and, and make them feel empowered or in control, we, we have the best, like people will listen to us pretty much whatever we want to say because you have a doctorate so people think you know what you're talking about and you work in games so people think that what you do is fun. And people, people will open up to you, they will listen to you. And I think that gives us a lot of power to reach even outside of our field. So I think there are problems unique to our field, but we also have a bigger possibility and a bigger opportunity if we want to take it to go beyond that and really like engage with the public in a way few AI researchers are able to. Uh, 